Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown. I'm your host, Paul, combat veteran, MMA fighter, and podcaster. Uh, today, I wanted to talk about the title that probably made you click on this. Did Brennan Herrera and Escape from Tarkov cause the Russian army supply problems? Guys, it's no secret that the Russian military has been plagued, plagued, with supply issues and sometimes it's a lot of analysts are talking about russia's inability to get their troops to the front their lack of spare parts the fact that they have this big blundering uh war machine that doesn't appear to be getting the fuel that it needs literally and proverbially so why then but how did this happen how does a first rate military something that the whole west of western europe and for decades the entirety of the free world uh feared be unable to outfit their troops when they're fighting a war on their border uh they couldn't get any closer to friendly territory unless they were fighting in chechnya which is of course in enclosed entirely by russia so let's to understand how this happened and to break down my theory, which we're absolutely going to get to, you've got to understand the Russian military culture, right? <clears throat> and so the Russian military is very, very different from the uh, modern U.S. military that is an all-volunteer force. The Russian military is a mix of volunteers, what are called contract soldiers, or soldiers who are hired on for additional duty, and conscripts, right? Did I say that? Conscripts, professional soldiers, and contract soldiers, right? And that's been the case even dating back to the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And I'm going to cite here, I, I, I mean, I'm going to link to these books below and it'll be an affiliate link, but you should honestly, they're just these are just great books to understand the Russian and late Soviet way of war. The first is The Great Gamble, The Soviet War in Afghanistan by Gregory Pfeiffer. This is a combination of firsthand interviews with Afghan, Soviet Afghan veterans uh, and, of course, uh, evidence-backed sort of meta big picture reporting. So the Soviet conscript system, uh, which is how they get most of their manpower, is f not a great one. First off, because wealthier, uh, more educated uh, Russian men can avoid military service. Avoiding military service is not that difficult. And so those that get drawn in are usually those who aren't very savvy uh, to begin with. And they are paid peanuts uh usually just a tiny tiny nominal salary i believe it's the equivalent of like 400 dollars a month um barely enough to live off of though the russian government provides them with food and housing and medical care and other basics and this was true in the soviet era as well right but there was a culture among conscripts in the soviet war where you would supplement your meager income by selling anything you could. And being a conscript, they didn't have any particular loyalty to the military as an institution. And so it wasn't seen as a big deal to sell two-thirds of your ammo, uh, to sell fuel. Uh, and because the conscript system had 
a sort of informal hierarchy with more junior conscripts being essentially subservient uh, and subject to abuse by more senior conscripts, uh, oftentimes those junior conscripts would have their gear stolen and sold off. And this was sold, you may ask yourself, who were they selling it to in Afghanistan? And they were selling it to Afghans. Uh, despite knowing full well that this material would almost certainly work its way back to the Mujahideen who would use it against them, the soldiers did it nonetheless. Because if you have a two-year service contract, and over that two years you've earned below minimum wage, uh, you've risked your life, many of these soldiers said, I have to have something to show for this. And so they would sell uh, any food they could steal. They would sell uh, gear, boots, clothing, weapon systems, anything they thought they could get away with. Again, oftentimes the other conscripts stuff as well. And that culture, uh, a lot of people think, oh, the Soviet military used to be this like upstanding, zero corruption military until the 90s, right? Until the collapse of the USSR. And then that's when all the generals sold off their stock to arms dealers, you know, fueling conflicts around the world. That's a pretty common narrative. But again, what you read in this novel is that many of the conscripts were never issued key components of their gear. The, they You can see in pictures, they often use uh, boots from the Second World War, laceless boots. Um, only it seems like the paratroopers would consistently have appropriate boots. Uh, you know, the VDV paratroopers in uh, Soviet military, of course, were considered sort of like special forces at the time, right? You would see a lot of troops appearing to lack their body armor, lacking helmets, and the accounts is that many of the troops said, we never got this. Not that I sold my boots, though some did. A lot of them never got it in the first place. And it became clear looking at the statistics. Uh, for example, the Soviet army pioneered uh, rations, much like the US was doing with their MREs. Um, you know, portable, non-perishable food that you could give a soldier that was prepackaged in a quantity sufficient to keep them fueled for a day or a meal. And it never made it to the troops. Most troops reported never having seen these rations uh, because they were so frequently diverted. Because in the Soviet culture, the black market, right, or the gray market rather, in which state-produced goods, which was all goods, uh, were siphoned off at every level and sold for profit, usually bartered through some sort of like good old boy network. And the result was that oftentimes by the time it had passed through the, you know, dozens of layers of Soviet bureaucracy, there was virtually nothing left. Uh, the officers would take a cut, the, you know, warehouse workers would take a cut, the factory workers would take a cut, they would just siphon it off and sell it to family and friends or sell it wholesale to uh, black market sort of arbitrage dealers. And it was so big, it used to be called the second economy of the Soviet Union, the black market economy. So all that to say is that by the late Soviet era, every military person was just expecting to sell and is to sell off some of their gear, right? Sell off whatever they could get money for. And I also have this confirmed anecdotally. I had a colleague whose father was a, a general in a 
uh, Soviet country. And she said, she was like, yeah, as a girl, we would, caviar and cognac were the two sort of de facto currencies of the black market that her father dealt in. And she was like, we ate so much caviar. She was like, I actually couldn't tell my friends at school what I ate for dinner because caviar was such a delicacy that it would arouse suspicion that they knew that I was eating it once a week, whereas most people had never seen it. Um, so it tells me, and this is this is someone who's, you know, who doesn't strike me as uh, someone who is like operating way outside the norm. She's an upstanding person. Um, and so I imagine that that this was just pervasive, that this wasn't just her dad in particular was a, was a you know, a general doing these things. I think everybody was. And so you have the fall of the Soviet Union, and then Russia, it becomes the Russian Federation. Well, remember in the 90s, the Russian Federation was incredibly poor, frighteningly poor. And so if you thought that the Soviet era uh, didn't reward its military enough to stop them from selling their gear. Uh, certainly, the early Russian Federation was going to have even more incentive for at every level, from conscript to general, to sell sell gear off. And this is why the second one, this is an autobiographical account, Arkady Bibchenko, One Soldier's War. If you've been following any of my Ukraine content, you know I love this book because it's one of the only ones that tells the story of what it's like to be a conscript in the Russian army fighting a dedicated, impassioned, uh, but non-mechanized defenders, right? This was, he fought in Chechnya, the first Chechen war in the 90s, and then returned as a contract soldier in the second Chechen war in the early 2000s. And it's such a good illustration of the fact that, frankly, between these two books, you realize virtually nothing changed in the for the average Soviet conscript. They were supposed to be issued a lot of more modern gear that by the time it got to them, almost all of it was gone. Um, conditions were pretty horrific uh, because, again, a battalion's worth of food would only feed maybe a company. Um, they were routinely selling their gear. They're selling their weapons. Um, and, see, and literally, in the case of the Chechens, fighting <laughs> against it sometimes as little as days later. And... This is just endemic to the conscript system, and it's it's culturally very broken. At the top levels, Russia, I think, has recognized this, and they've tried to fix it, but it's hard to root out corruption that runs, that's at every single level all the way up, because you have to think, if you're, let's say, a company commander in Chechnya, and you get issued a, a thousands of rounds uh, for your soldiers to use, and, but you look and you say, I know when I issue these rounds to those soldiers, they're going to empty half the magazines and sell it to Chechens. I know it. And so you go, well, f, f these guys. I should get paid, right? So you're going to, you have the incentive to sell it. But, if, but it occurs at the level above you, right? That battalion commander goes, as soon as these company commanders get their grubby hands on these rations, they're going to be selling them. So I'm going to sell them because I need to get paid too, or sell some of them. So... And they're right, you know, by the time it gets down to the conscripts, they go, wow, everything's been sold out from under us. Why shouldn't I get paid? So we've established, again, through these, these primary sources, that 
being a Russian conscript and the Russian logistics system is plagued with corruption, right? Uh, but the question is, does it occur in the modern mili Russian military, the year 2020, right? Is it true that there's still the culture of selling things off? Well, here's what's interesting. Let's see if we can find... Here it is. Be beautiful. Radio Free Liberty. Uh, let's pull up. Yeah, I'll let, let you guys try to see this. Yeah, so this is, for those of you listening, uh, this is an article from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, dated February 19th, 2022. So before the uh, Russian troops entered Ukraine. And the headline is, quote, they drink a lot, sell their fuel, unquote. Colon, Belarusians give low marks to Russian troops deployed for drills. Yep, so this is, they're covering it as though it's Russian troops deployed for a drill. Um, right, and it discusses this article. I'll try to link it below uh, in the description. It talks about residents of a Belarusian town on the southeast corner, not far from the Ukrainian border, um, about Russian forces in his country for joint military exercises. He said the soldiers have settled in the surrounding forests. They drink a lot and sell a lot of their diesel fuel. They're living in tents. It talks about a 10-day exercise set to end on February 20th, involving 30,000 Russian troops and almost the entire Belarusian military. Uh, it talks about it sparking fears. But the point of this, oh, here we go. According to a Telegram channel that covers de developments in Belarus's railroads, Russians began unloading military equipment the night of February 14th to 15th. Um, and it talks about the trains actually getting backed up. But what's really interesting, it says military equipment is frequently dropped from the platforms during unloading. And after unloading, a lot of abandoned equipment, body armor, helmets, personal gear remained. And here's what's interesting. I think that these, these Belarusians may not understand that this gear isn't dropped from the trains accidentally. It's set aside. It literally fell off the truck. Um, I'd set aside for them looking for buyers. Someone, probably the officers of the unit or the logistics staff, are probably looking for buyers for this gear, um, especially because they say it's focused on body armor, helmets, and personal gear, not, for example, spare parts for tanks or, uh, you know, extra fuel or take your pick, right? There's lots of obscure items that militaries need, uh, pots and pans for their kitchen trailers or uh, extra medical supplies or what have you, right? So anyway, the point of this is, is that I think there's pretty robust evidence that prior to the invasion, this was still happening, that the Russian military still had a culture of siphoning and selling off gear. So now we get to the real crux of the issue why do i think what do i think this has to do with brennan herrera grantham escape from tarkov and the general tactical firearm culture that surrounds all of it well here's the thing you have to think the if you're a soviet conscript in afghanistan your only market for your military gear is the Mujahideen fighting you. And poor Afghans, they're not exactly rolling in wealth, and they weren't back then, and they aren't now. And so you probably weren't getting exactly the great market price for it. I mean, you got that weapon for free, so if you get any amount of money for it, you're killing it. 
And same with the Chechens. If you want to sell your body armor, for example, the Chechens will buy it, but they're one of the most impoverished regions in Russia. But in the modern era, thanks to globalization, uh, it's been the golden age of being able to sell overseas. I can tell you, I used to sell items on eBay, and I would routinely get foreign buyers. I've bought Soviet military surplus gear um, from Ukraine, Belarus. Uh, I've had stuff shipped over from Europe. It's business as usual. This is completely and totally typical and normal, right? So I think that it, it, there's a lot. This is the golden era of selling stuff on the internet wherever you are, right? And what that means is that the incentive to sell your gear has never been higher. Where it used to be that a conscript, you know, where, where would a Soviet general even sell their body armor? They might sell it to a private security company, maybe. Um, but the body armor doesn't really, there's no one who's, who's a, who is a buyer of that sort of thing, right? There might be a buyer for the cloth that goes into it or the raw materials, but that's about it. Nowadays, of course, there's a massive demand for body armor optics and you want authentic military grade stuff there's one thing if you've played tarkov or uh you know seen any of brennan herrera's videos or Granthums, you know that this military stuff it's resilient it's designed to be used right if you want a proper if you're shooting from a, an ak platform you want ak tailored optics you want and maybe even need ak tailored parts uh, similarly, if you're a tactical guy, you, yeah, a plate carrier is cool, but you also want uh, authentic, you know, Soviet or Russian military equipment. If you're like an airsofter, for example, um, the incentives, the, the pull factors are huge. Demand for tactical gear, I argue, has probably never been higher, especially in the civilian market. And Russia's ability, the ability of a Russian or an, ent an enterprising uh, Russian or Belarusian or Ukrainian company to uh, that has a connection, a, some sort of connect to buy this gear, the profit margins have never been higher, right? You can pack sh and ship it and people will wait. <laughs> you know, they don't, they will wait a long time to get this real gear. I have done it. I've purchased... Uh, Two of my absolute favorite rain jackets are actually Russian military Gorka jackets uh, that you can see some of the separatists uh, uh, using today. Here is an example, right? I'm, I'm, this is not like an endorsement, but this is a, a, a website that I get after I bought my first couple pieces of old military gear that I used for camping. Um, we're talking like a poncho and some of the silly hats that I wear on stream and, and that sort of stuff. But they're all authentic, right? Uh, I get ads from this company all of the time. They're nothing special about them. They're a tactical shop that specializes in Russian gear. But here's what's interesting. Look at uniforms, regular uniforms. For $80, I can buy a Russian, genuine Russian VKBO summer uniform from the Ratnik system. 
I can also get Russian, uh, they say Russian National Guard, Russian Ministry of Interior Forces uniform for $85. In fact, I can even get the ACU multicam um, uniform used by Russian Special Forces for $116. How is it possible that a Russian military who explicitly is desperately trying, though they don't have that many height sizes, uh, the Russian military that's desperately, desperately struggling to uh, navigate still equip its troops, you're still able to purchase their uniforms, right? Let's look at some other stuff, right? I'm scrolling through. Let's look at gear. Oh, buddy. Oh, man. This is this is this is only gonna get weird. Oh wait wait, we can do even better. Nah, let's do it. Tactical vests, Russian body armor. That's right, guys. I can buy Russian-made body armor. Now I don't think they sell it with the plates, um, but it's pretty clear that this is here here a hundred and ninety dollars so for less than two hundred dollars i can get the russian standard issue infantry body armor the ratnik system 6b43 uh for a hundred ninety dollars it even comes with all the rollout kevlar right all it doesn't have is the yeah an exact replica of the model used by russian soldiers uh brah this is this says Ministry of Defense on it, I think. Yeah, this is not an exact replica. This is the this is it's an exact replica because it's the real thing. It has the two Holden foam plates, right? And that's pretty standard for this body armor, right? It's produced with just filler plates, and then you insert it, insert your actual ceramic plates into it. So, yeah, I think it's really important. Um, to understand, yeah, this gear is still available. Like, a lot of it. There's their body armor, right? Here's a whole bunch of Russian tactical backpacks. Uh, yep, here's a 15 liter in Ratnik pattern. Uh, yeah, all of these made by Russian military contractors. Right, and then when you go to armament, this is where it gets real interesting. So you look at Russian-made red dot sites. Here is a here's a Russian standard issue red dot site. Something that in one of Brennan Herrera's videos he pointed out, despite have being equipped with modern rifles, almost no Russian troops have optics on their weapons. Yet here is Russian military-made optics for sale, four hundred seventy-one dollars for a Cobra, uh, original Cobra that mounts to the side of. AK systems. Here's a Picatinny Rail Cobra, $429. Uh, $300 for a PKU-2 original red dot site. So you see you've got the red dot sites. Let's see what else we have. We also have, of course, night vision scopes, right? Russian military-issued night vision scopes. Uh, let's see, are they for sale? It's thinking, it's thinking about it. Can I buy Russian military night vision scopes? Why, yes, I can. And this is definitely authentic because it is $3,000 for a PN23 night scope. Latest development by MPZ, low weight, compact dimensions, right? Night scope PN23 3 Gen 3, 
starting at $5,000 and starting at $5,500, the PN23 5 Gen 3. Allow you to make precision shots up to 500 meters away. This is the sort of thing that the Russian military should be taking to battle, but aren't. And it's pretty incredible that, yes, it advertises this as airsoft guns. Uh, I, I'm here to tell you, man, it's not. I'm just, I'm just going to point it out. I've just got to say it. Nobody's making, if you were to make cheap replica body armor, uh, one, it wouldn't be $500. It wouldn't be manufactured by the same people, right? This is, I guarantee it, I am a certain, it is a, a, a certainty that this is authentic body armor with the plates removed, obviously. So what you got to ask yourself, right, is... Is the fact that so many people love this Russian tactical gear that it's had its moment for the past couple of years um, as maybe a cheaper alternative or just a, a alternative to you know the U.S. made kind of tactical community? Um, is that incentivizing Russian? military generals and officers to sell this stuff online? It seems clear clear as day that somehow Russian optics that are manufactured and should be going to Russian troops are ending up for sale online. And we also, if you've been on stream, we've, we've done this before, but but you can see even on eBay, right? There's some fair amount of Russian military uh, scopes I'm scrolling through now, uh, trying to see it. Oh, eBay, eBay doesn't allow, right? Now with the sanctions, obviously a lot of big retailers aren't selling Russian military surplus. But I can tell you a year ago, it used to be, you should just be a wash in it. You could get Russian military surplus anywhere. So anyway, guys, do I think this sort of culture of, of hype around it has driven this? Yes, absolutely. And so... You know, I think we need to understand that the Russian military's logistics failure, I think, is part of an endemic culture of greed at the expense of the state that whatever else you say about the U.S. military and its cultural problems, whatever they have, um, the U.S. military has a culture of basic honesty and integrity and not selling your gear out from under you and accountability. They are very, very ridiculously strict. But they also compensate their soldiers fairly, and they're a democracy, so soldiers actually do get a say in uh, how and when and where they fight through their elected leaders. So anyway, guys, I hope you found this informative. Um, if you have questions, let me know. Also, of course, if you uh, have I don't know, other topics you want me to cover, let me know. Be sure to uh, follow me on twitch twitch.tv slash combat vet paul ah yes and i would be remiss to not thank the patreons the patrons of patreon who get access to exclusive content and an exclusive room on the discord thanks to our lieutenant tier patrons cole foster command unit caffeinated Jakob flavius chris dr shadow cop portal world time brandon armitage tell ruin and astro hunter you guys keep this podcast a rolling all right i'll see you guys in the next one